Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Wood Talk for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now here are three guys who have great personalities. Mark, Matt, and Shannon. All right, it's episode 172 for March 3rd, 2014. On today's show, Mike is looking for alternatives to epoxy thickeners. Ted is interested in hand planing small parts. Tom wants to know the ideal plane for a shooting board. Baron has some questions about the blacker house chair that I just made. Uh, Chad wants to know how cold temps and high humidity will affect his wood. Do they know about shrinkage? And Ryan wants us to talk about reclaimed wood. And all that and more coming up, but first, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors. Today's show is sponsored by Brusso Hardware. Brusso has been manufacturing high-precision woodworking hardware in the U.S. for over 20 years. The entire line is produced at their factory in Belleville, New Jersey, and is available through distributors worldwide. View the complete product line, including knife hinges, butt hinges, quadrant hinges, and more at brusso.com. As a special offer to Wood Talk listeners, use the code WOODTALK at checkout for a 10% discount. And uh, you know what? We should probably do a happy birthday, right? I think we should because somebody of the three of us has a birthday. It's not me. And Is not me. No, because ours are back to back. So exactly. that means. Oh, gosh. Yep. It's that's me. right. It's Alex's dad. <laughs> yep. Do it in German. Go. I like that. Ready? <clears throat> hold on. Wait. Hold on. Okay. I got to get it. I got to get water. This is this is really painful. <clears throat> uh, no, that, that's, that's the wrong. That's note. definitely not a D. I'm going for a D. Okay. Happy birthday, Mister Shanny. Is that good? That's awesome, and that works for me. <laughs> that's as far that should, as I'm going. That should be no harmony. Come on. <laughs> yeah. See, Matt, you didn't even jump in the cold water with me. Actually, no, I did. The problem is, it just went that high. <laughs> it's such a high. Uh, yeah. Okay. Let's. Let's. I think Alex heard it for sure. Yeah. Alex is like. Mm. All right, let's move into what's on the bench. And yeah, by the way, happy birthday, Shannon. Hey, thanks. Hey, you know, I was wondering this earlier. How old are you? 39. Oh, so I'm the youngest in this group, huh? And I am the oldest. So I guess that means I'm the first to kick the bucket. Maybe not. I don't know. We're all guys. We're all going to go early. So that's true. It's true. All right. Let's uh, move into what's on the bench. We don't have much time in our lives, so let's hurry it up. Um, (laughs) Good Lord. (laughs) Now you get the morbid award. (laughs) Yes, that's right. Uh, I am working. Well, I actually finished up my poker chip trays and a fun project. Another blast from the past for me. This was my first published article I ever had in Woodcraft magazine and actually made the cover, which I was pretty surprised about back then. And uh, well, I'd be surprised about it now, in fact. Um, (laughs) So yeah, it was poker chip trays and it's a very simple project but it does require some special tooling in terms of like 
uh, drilling out the slots and I have a technique of using the drill press for it and uh, really really cool a lot of fun and again you have the drill press it's fairly simple to do and that's uh, going to be a video coming out pretty soon uh, probably in a couple of weeks now here's the cool thing and I have it kind of I guess I'll leak it here a little bit but uh, there is a poker champion and also a television host who is a fan of the Wood Whisperer, oddly enough, and also is a guild member. And do you guys know Phil Gordon? No, but I remember having this conversation when I, I was going to say I do, but I feel like we've talked about this before, and that's why. Yeah, we yeah. might we might have because uh, I was surprised when I found out he was a guild member. This was this was years ago. Anywho, uh, Phil Gordon is a poker dude. He's been on like the celebrity poker uh, shows on TV. And uh, I contacted him and asked him if he would help us out with, with this particular build because it's clearly in his wheelhouse. And he's like, yeah, anything you need, I'll do it. And he's going to offer for anybody who builds this within, a, I guess, probably like a one-month time frame. Anybody who builds poker chip trays and sends me a picture is entered in to win a contest where they will get a one-hour poker lesson over Skype with Phil Gordon. Now, cool. that is cool because <laughs> right. I am horrible at poker. In fact, my friends love it when I play because they know I'm always going to lose. Yeah, yeah. So I'm terrible at it, too. Nice. I don't know how to as play. long as we don't, like, have to play him for real because right. I don't have that many goldfish crackers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how many goldfish do you want to bet? Fifteen. Uh, so, is, yeah. And I, I would like to also mention uh, – Maybe if people are interested in purchasing it, I have an autographed copy of that Woodcraft magazine from said uh, time that you had it actually on the cover. Dude, you no know what's way. weird? I was I was looking at the copy that I have, the only remaining copy that I have, and on the front, I don't know whether I just screwed up the the like signature, the autograph for you, and sent you a better one because the one I have says straight grains and sharp blades, Matt, or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so I defaced another copy of this, and that's the one that I've got, and and I'm glad to hear that I did actually send you one but it makes me wonder what went wrong with this one that i've got <laughs> nice. your your sign off on it so interesting well, I, I have an unsigned one if you want me to send that one to you mark oh okay there you go um all right so that that was pretty exciting really really excited about what's coming up with that uh, also got a little bit of much needed uh shop time just i'm always in the shop but this is like shop focused time so i think i'm finally going to get those doors and drawers put on the cabinets I uh, got a few other little projects here and there just to kind of, uh, again, the space has never been completely finished. Uh, probably never will be, but it certainly could be better than what it is. So I'm getting a lot of that uh, little TLC shop time, which I always enjoy. Cool. Nice. That's fun stuff. Can't beat it. So uh, Shannon, you're up next. What's going on? <laughs> well, um, I've been actually doing a little bit of the same in the shop. I'm just, I'm, I'm in that finished drying stage mm -hmm. uh, of this uh pedestal table. So there's not a lot that I can do in between coats. So I've just been kind of, for lack of a better term, piddling around the shop, cleaning things up, putting stuff away, throwing things away, mm -hmm. spring cleaning while there's still snow on the ground. Sure. But um, this past weekend, I joined a couple of guys from my local Sapfum chapter, and we went down to the National Gallery in DC to check out the Kaufman collection. And, you know, I've seen it before, but it's been probably been a couple decades you know, it's one of those things where when it's close by, you never go to it. Sure. <laughs> so, yep. uh, you know, or if we end up in D.C., we go to like the sexy museums, like the Air and Space or something like that. And uh, this <laughs> that was, is sexy, Shannon. Yeah. Well, for nerds, for people who watch <laughs> Big Bang Theory, Air and Space Museum, that's sexy. <laughs> um, hey, oh, but uh, it was uh, it was just awesome. You know, um, first of all, we've got some a few luminaries in our local Sapfum chapter. So there's people that like really know what they're talking about. Um, one of them's Don Williams. He was there with us. 
Um, it's just he's such a cool guy. Of course, he worked for the Smithsonian for years, so he's probably like actually handled some of this furniture. But just like walking around looking at these pieces of furniture, and you can absolutely have no interest in period furniture whatsoever. Um, but you can't help but just respect what what they did. You know, forget about the fact that they didn't have power tools. That some of you can't even do with power tools anyway. But just looking at it and and seeing the the level of detail, but most importantly, the volume of errors uh-huh. um, that we would not tolerate today. Sure, that are just so apparent. You know, and of course, it's probably only woodworkers that see it. But you know, I'm always telling people if you you know you start to feel down about your work, go to a museum and look at these so-called masterworks, you know, and realize that they're masterworks not because they're absolutely perfect, but because of you know form and 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 design and things like that. Mm-hmm. But there was a couple of instances on this. Um, what the museum actually calls their like um, like the flagship or the the marquee or whatever they're whatever I'm trying to say, like the most important piece in their collection. It was this um, high boy by. Uh, uh, Goddard uh, up in Newport and there are like behind the brass escutcheon plates you can see where someone has cut out the actual keyhole for the mortise lock mm-hmm. and it is literally hacked with the chisel <laughs> like right. probably one handed and an eye shut you just hacked into place and then an escutcheon thrown over top of it and you can see it's like all splintered nasty underneath it uh, other instances where the brass escutcheons actually don't fit on the drawer so they're like hanging off um, off the edge of the drawer and they have since broken because of that you know mm, right. you look at the sides of the cases and it's a solid you know single piece case side with an enormous crack right down the side because did they pay attention to wood movement hell no <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's it's incredibly refreshing to see that but you know at the same time you're looking at at, at history up close and personal and uh, I took so many pictures, I can't even begin to uh, recount them all. But it's just it just reminded me how important that is for us as woodworkers to just kind of get out and look at furniture. Sure. Um, you know, and if, of course, you don't have the Smithsonian nearby. There's got to be something. You know, even if it's just, you know, going to a furniture store and just looking around and seeing what's there and what inspiration can you draw from it. So I took a bunch of pictures, but I don't think I took a single picture of, like, the entire piece. Mm-hmm. It was, like, all close-ups. You know, a corner molding here, a little detail there, and it's all just stuff that gets filed away into my into a hard drive for me to kind of reflect upon when it's time to build a new project. And it was, it was a very um, kind of recharging trip for me. Yeah, you know, you finished up a project and you're kind of thinking about the next one and thinking about what else do I want to build. And I walked away from that basically three hours of the museum, just like jazzed up, yeah, ready awesome. to, to build some stuff. So it, it, it's key, even if you just have to look through a book. Uh, but if you can get to it in person at all, I highly recommend it. Cool. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. When you see something like that, it does give you like that kind of like inspiration to move forward. But I, I often wonder if the museum workers are like, oh, God, not those guys again. They get all over the floor. <laughs> I actually talked <laughs> to the security board about that because they have these um, light sensors, these motion sensors that prevent you from getting too close. Uh, there's these little, essentially like dime-sized holes in the pedestal that the furniture sits on and another one directly above it. And if you break that beam, you get this little beep. And oh, man. <laughs> it, was, it was like this cacophony of beeps to the entire gallery. <laughs> right. It's basically eight guys you know, constantly breaking the beam, the security guard, back away from the furniture. Yes, I'm talking to you. Back away from the furniture. Finally I have the same thing when I go bowling. Them. 
<laughs> they should totally like give you. To oh, they should give you like electrical shocks when you do that. Ooh, that, would, that, would, I, yeah, that might not work though. To tell you the truth, I imagine there's some curator that's like, "Oh God, not those Samsung guys again." I don't want to have this debate. Please, yeah. let's well, just. <laughs> to his credit, he said, "You know, it, it, it's nice to see people who actually appreciate it." Though he's like, many people, you know, I apparently he's been working there for thirty some years. He's like, I see people just walk in and out of this gallery and don't even stop. Right. So he's like. It's actually just the opposite. I'm not annoyed by you guys at all. At it's least refreshing. you appreciate what's going on. That's so, cool. Eh. Nice. nice. Good deal. Although so the we... beeping got a little annoying. <laughs> just tell them it was the hearing aids that were all going out. <laughs> right. That's terrible. That's awful. <laughs> oh, wait, did I stereotype us? Yes, you did. Oh, that's well, good. Say, I, I think that most of us were probably in our 30s there. So oh, cool. Touche. Oh. One of them was almost on the verge of going out of his 30s. I know. Mm-hmm. See? Let me say that for one more year. <laughs> Sweet. Hey, well, you know what also causes a lot of beeping? I'm just going to move right on to what's on my bench because I know you guys are going to ask me anyways. Go ahead. Ask me. iPhones? Yes, it was. I was making some veneered <laughs> iPhone cases. In fact, I just released the video. But I'm trying to convince my daughter because she was hitting me up this weekend for, Dad, how can I make some money? I'm like, well, you could Easy mass produce these. <laughs> And then you could pay me a royalty because I showed you how to do it. There you go. Nice. I like that. I can only guess what the response was. Yeah. There was a lot of eye rolling. And then she just went right back to using the uh, device that the case was intended for. Tell her to go shovel snow. Um, That's what I used to do. I don't, I don't even want I to made go a, into I that made a one. ton of money. Well, for a kid. A ton of money shoveling snow as a kid. Yeah, I've, I've often suggested that one. And usually I find myself in the, in the closet crying. As I'm trying to get away from them. So. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I won't, I won't mention it again. Well, I'll, I'll go take care of it right now. Just leave me alone. Well, I'll, so. I'll tell you, Matt. I watched you once again in full HD glory on the big screen because I'm watching you on TiVo. And, and I never miss an episode of Matt's Basement Workshop now thanks to TiVo. It's so you awesome. Are, you are welcome. You're, you're very welcome. It's so how, great. I don't know. How, how, did, many, how did my like, right beard look? I felt like I was a little out of place. <laughs> it looked great. Good. You you always look good at, at 75 inches. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, I'm at 75 inches. <laughs> I was gonna say that's that's larger than life size. What are you talking just about? Just about, just about. <laughs> nice. Well, hey, let's move on to what's new. What do you guys got going on? I see we've got a few links in here. Yeah, we do. Uh, I've got one here from Blair Glenn, and Blair's a, a friend. He's uh, someone who I met through David Marks, and he has a video about. Uh, he's an arborist. Is that what you call those people? Arbor, yeah, um, gu- arbor guys. He likes Street to stand doctor. under arbors. Arbor dude. He's an arbor dude. And uh, they take trees down and stuff like that. So the video is of a, which I accidentally clicked on just now, is a <laughs> removal of a giant redwood. And um, I mean, it, obviously redwoods get bigger than this, but still, this tree is massive. So it's the whole process of taking it down bit by bit and then pulling, you know, once they get it down to a reasonable length, then they take the whole thing down and then they turn a lot of it into usable lumber. And it's like a, a lot of this work is just done right there on site. Um, it's a lot of fun to watch. So I'll put the, the link in the show notes for that. It's a good video. Sweet. I bet you it's not as big and as impressive as I am on the TV. Most likely not. I only, not. Saw, I only saw it on the computer, so... <laughs> Okay. Well, hey, this next one, speaking of trees and bringing them down, Jay sent us a link to treehugger.com, and it is uh, titled, You Can't Hide Global Forest Watch. Essentially, this is just a really neat article kind of talking about uh, lumber uh, being taken from 
locations where it probably shouldn't be being harvested to locations where we're actually seeing people start to put more in. In fact, uh, one of the quotes in the article says, Global Forest Watch is a near real-time monitoring platform that will fundamentally change the way people and businesses manage forests. From now on, the bad guys cannot hide and the good guys will be recognized for their stewardship. So, Mm -hmm. Shannon, when you're out getting your next uh, tree for a lathe in your uh, garage there, they will see you. (laughs) Nice. That's you awesome. will show up as a red dot, which is bad. You know, what's crazy is there's a lot of this stuff going on from GPS marking to uh, there's a company using old cell phones that basically uh, are programmed to like connect when they hear a noise. Um, and I, I, I don't know whether it's programmed to a certain decimal level or whatever, but basically the sound of a chainsaw and it will connect. And everyone's like, oh, that's great. And I'm thinking... Once you hear the chainsaw, it's a little late. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Quick, get in the car, Batman. Let's go. Whoa, we're too late. You know? Or you quickly but, dial and start yelling, stop it, stop it. Oh, my God, the trees the, are talking. The point being that there's a lot of high tech that's being brought to bear to uh, prevent uh, illegal harvesting, and it's making it harder and harder and harder to do this. This is, this is cool. I'd never seen this site before. Yeah, so Ooh, definitely Thailand. That's a little scary. <laughs> <laughs> and there's all sorts of neat colors on here. In fact, one of them almost looks like I'm not even going to go into that. So definitely check that out. It's it's a pretty interesting article if you're into stuff like that. Cool, cool. Well, we got another uh, YouTube video from Billy, and uh, he says, "I don't know what he's making, but his cordless is pretty wild." Um, he is a Japanese woodworker, and um, He's right. You can watch this whole video and you'd be completely captivated watching this this uh, woodworker and you have no idea what he's making. And I actually finally figured it out. There are four videos in this series. And of course, everything's in Japanese characters. So unless you're, you're Japanese, your written Japanese is good, you're going to be as lost as the rest of us. <laughs> but he's actually making an abacus, um, those little things that they give to uh, students. It's a calculator, essentially, an right. ancient calculator. And um it's one of those things where the level of detail is just mind blowing. And he has uh, a pump drill. Uh, when what Billy's talking about is his cordless drill is pretty wild. It's an old pump drill, which is probably the, maybe the second oldest form of drill known to man. Um, they're kind of cool. We've got one at the museum and, and basically it sits out on the bench just for people to play with, <laughs> you know, cause every time someone comes into the workshop, it's, it's, ooh, what's this? And it's one of those things that no one actually uses for anything. So you can let you know kids and people play with it all day long. And it's basically just a stick with um, string wrapped around it and a, a little, almost a bow. And you push it up and down and it causes it to wind and unwind the drill. So it's a reciprocating drill just by using a couple of fingers. It takes a little bit of practice to get it working right. Well, this video shows what you can do with it. Mm-hmm. Normally, a pump drill is used for drilling really hard things like porcelain or whatever. It's not really in this instance made for, for woodworking, but this guy like drills hundreds and hundreds of holes and he's actually got his pump drill like fixed in a drill press looking thing. It's just very, very cool. So we'll not just kind of put the link into the first video, but if you look in the related videos, you'll see uh, a bunch of others and just look past the Japanese characters and look for the one of two and two of two, and then there's another set that says one of two and two of two. Look for those, and you'll see the whole build. But it, it's uh, it's pretty cool. And if Wilbur's listening, it makes me want to pick up a Japanese hand plane. <laughs> you know, I, I'm going to say when I was watching him using that that drill, it reminds me of a top that I've seen for children. It makes me also wonder then, did a woodworker forget to get a gift for a child and said, you know what? Here, play with this kid, and handed it to him. <laughs> that would be fun. 
Uh, you know what? If, if for nothing else, what YouTube has done for woodworkers is like opening our eyes to things done in other cultures and getting actual good video footage uh, of just yeah. how things are being done. So it, it just opens up your mind a little bit. I mean, think about how many videos that's, that was kind of the joke with this one is like, I know you guys are really into African videos, but <laughs> here's, here's a Japanese one, you know, cause we talk about, there's so many, like there's so much footage of these people doing amazing things in other uh, countries that, that are just mind boggling to us. Um, but it really is, I think gives us well, a good perspective. I'll tell you one thing that's mind boggling about that series of videos, leave the safety police at the door. Cause there are some cringeworthy moments. Well, the opening shot of this particular video is him freehanding through what looks to be some sort of a old table saw, this big right. chunk of wood. Right. A chunk of wood that is not square or flat on any face. Nope. Um, and he's running it through the table saw. There's a lot of chiseling, like holding the piece and chiseling into the webbing of his hand. Yeah. Um, there's one where he's actually uh, removing the waste in a groove. Like he's cut, he used a, a a cutting gauge to cut like the two sidewalls of a groove. And he's basically just like plowing out the, the gunk in between with a little thin chisel. Yeah. And he's got one hand holding it and the other hand, like holding it like, like a serial killer holds a knife and he's just like hacking it out. So in other words, there is nothing preventing that chisel from just going right out the end and through his finger, <laughs> but just out of sheer, you know, decades and decades of practice, he obviously stays in perfect control with this thing, but there is a lot of of moments when I looked at it and said, "Oh my god, that scares me." <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's a safety police, uh, you know what kind of dream. Yeah. Okay, we've got another one here. This one was sent in by Jay. It's a three D printer that's actually printing in wood. So there is, I mean, who knows exactly what this wood sort of composite material is, but it comes in this uh, very rough rope, very thin and rough sort of rope that goes into the machine and it prints whatever you want it to print. And in this case, he makes a little uh, a little sliding lid box, very tiny, almost like a matchbox size. Uh, and he said it just needed a little sanding after the fact to get it to slide through nice and even. But um, it's, it's printing in a wood product. And my guess is like once it's all said and done, the stuff is probably going to look and feel a lot like MDF. And for what I saw right. in the video seemed, seemed to be the case. Um, but re- really interesting. I mean, who knows where this is going to go in the future. Um, but it is kind of an interesting application for, for modeling and prototyping and all that type of stuff. But usually have, you see this in you plastics. Have seen there are companies now that do 3d printing on demand, like, <clears throat> like, you know, a cafe press or a Zazzle or someplace yeah, like that, where you, you can, can like do custom printed t-shirts. Oh. There are companies like that where you can, um, either submit a model or you can use their software to create a model and yeah. you can choose like 20 different materials and That's whatever awesome. it is printed. I saw it on Twitter the other day. Some guy made like a thumb screw for a, a hand plane he was making and had it printed up in stainless steel. Wow. sent to him. Well, that's awesome. I mean, for, for, the, so cool. for the amount that those things cost, you figure like renting it out like that is a great way to make some money yeah. back on it. And I have no idea how, what, how much such a thing costs, but they're, yeah. they're like bobbleheads on the site. So anybody who's paying to have a 3D printed bobblehead, I just can't imagine those people are paying $800 for it. So right, right. Maybe, maybe they are. I don't know. If it's a Matt Vandalus bobblehead. Ooh. I was going to say, can we get one that's, oh, like that's in the brilliant. shape of like the Mount Rushmore with the three of us? Oh, so someone do that. Yeah, please. For Christmas, be looking out. All right, cool. Sweet. Oh, hey, we have another one here. Uh, speaking of videos, you guys familiar with Frank Howarth? Have you ever seen any of his videos? Uh, yeah, his stuff, he's a hack. Yeah, it just I'm surprised that they still let him on there. That there stuff there are animators just... at Disney that are better than him. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's actually animators at Disney that are like, I wish we could be Frank Howarth. That would be cool. 
So anyways, Kenji sent this one, and it's a new Frank Howarth video if you haven't seen it yet. He said, quote, unquote, Kenji says, it is also great to see that he's reading Mark's new book. Look for the appearance of it in the middle of the video. That right there, once again, says to me, don't watch this video. <laughs> it's a double sucky video. <laughs> but, but that makes it much more fun because it's like, where's Waldo all of a sudden? I actually, for the I book. didn't see it. I, I yeah, I still it. haven't seen it. Like, so, I, so you have to pause it to find these books if you're going to actually read the titles. Um, I was mesmerized by this. And I've, I even said on Facebook, I said, you know, without a doubt, these videos, just with the whimsical approach of them and the sort of, like you said, that it's almost like a Disney aspect that your shop comes to life. It's so well done. And there's so much creativity and heart in it that these are hands down the most entertaining woodworking videos ever made. Now it's not necessarily in terms of instruction where we look to, you know, this, the stuff that I think we try to do sometimes is entertain and teach at the same time. This is to me, it's, he is building something great, but it's pure entertainment and it's right, an yeah. absolute joy to sit through this. It, it really does look like an animated feature, you know, that happens to feature it's, it's like claymation. Yeah. Although I got to say the bookshelf that he made, it was pretty cool. I yeah. like the design. Well, see, that's what that I'm saying. The floating, designs. full mitered corner shelf where oh, the, yeah. the pedestal itself is is has that. Um, what do you call it? Where it floats, it, it's recessed underneath, so it looks right. like the bookcase. There's that space in between it. Sure. It's a very cool design too. It is. It is. It's beautiful. I mean, all of his stuff is beautiful, and that's that's the thing that just makes it even better. Is you're not just getting this great video presentation. You're actually seeing something awesome go together. So, and um, let's not forget how cool his tools are, Frank. You're all around. I hate you. <laughs> I mean that in a way that I would hug you. I mean that in the best possible way. And I mean that in the wood talk way. Yes. In the wood talk way. <laughs> well, we, we also have to give kudos to Kenji for being the first person to get this video to us. Because I think we're up to probably 20 or 30 people that have now <laughs> sure shared this link with us. So yeah. kudos, Kenji, for being the early adopter on that. And you um, win and, absolutely nothing special. Yeah, absolutely nothing at all. Um, this last one I added actually because it's it's I call it stupid wood turning tricks. It's with Cindy Drazda. If you don't know Cindy, she's kind of famous now for making these really really delicate finial boxes on the lathe. Hmm. Um, I'm sure you've you've seen her work. Um, really really thin, long spindly finials, and it's just a lot of artistic work to it. Someone dared her to try to turn a bowl from a head of cauliflower. <laughs> and I'll be damned if she doesn't do it and does it well. So does she you know, eat it afterwards? Cause that'd be <laughs> no, but she does take the shavings and drop it in and makes a salad. With, oh, that's with great. Purple. It's, it's classic. Sweet. And I think it's, it's only like five minutes long, but, um, you know, it's funny first of all, but second of all, to watch a master with a, with a wood turning chisel. I mean, it's amazing what she does. You can only imagine how delicate this cauliflower is when she hollows it out. Yeah. And she's just like, oh, one more pass. And you're like, no, don't do that. Sure enough, she takes one more smoothing pass and ends up with essentially a live edge bowl made out of a cauliflower. It's just cool. That's crazy. That is yeah. nuts. I'm going to have That's to go awesome. watch that. I didn't see it yet. So now, now we know how um, like bread bowls are made. There you go. At the Olive Garden, there's some dude on a lathe back there. <laughs> hold on, hold on. I gotta. I can only do one a minute. I hope it's a pedal. <laughs> Come on, Luigi, turn it. <laughs> Soup takes forever over here. Uh, all right, let's move into our poll of the week by our good buddy, Tom Iovino at tomsworkbench.com. And this week he asks the question, have you tried inlay? And uh, let's see how the votes turned out. About 38% said that I want to desperately. And <laughs> Desperately. <laughs> Desperately, I want to. <laughs> Please just give me an opportunity. Just, just go do it. Uh, Twenty-five percent said I have, but they're quite challenging. 
eighteen uh, percent said I have no desire to do one. <laughs> Jerks, Close jeez, people. what's wrong with you? Twelve uh, percent said, of course, they're easy. Those are the people using the template kits. <laughs> right. And seven uh, percent said, what's an inlay? You know, when there's questions like that, I always wonder if they're joking or if that's a real like that's a real result. Uh, I think that's a real result because I, I have those moments. Where I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> onlay inlay I don't yeah, know. inlay um are we talking about wood or something else <laughs> right all right let's move into kickback that's where you tell us some stuff and we listen and usually okay. usually it's correct usually make fun of you for kicking it to us yes you correct yes. you correct us and then we make fun of you that's how the relationship works <laughs> that's exactly it and, um, and you know you love it exactly. you love the abuse you well, hey, wait, this, first, this first one came in from a bike too many and i'm just gonna say this this one is directed at me i know you guys usually think that it's you but for sure this it's is usually me. shannon Yes, usually Shannon. I say I'm usually the wrong one. <laughs> yeah. Well, this time it turns it's my out my birthday though. I'm not allowed to be wrong. Oh, I'm right, right all day long. <laughs> there yeah. you go. Well, the good news is, according to a bike too many, uh, I'm only partly wrong. So he says you were only partly wrong and would talk 170, 171, which makes you partly right. Why couldn't I say 171? That was weird. So I'm partly right. Here's a little kickback on the noise reduction. I remember we had the question that came in about how can you eliminate or reduce some of the noise coming out of the shop so that you can maybe work in there when somebody's maybe sleeping or trying to do something else. So he says, uh, the real problem with noise is sound waves hitting hard surfaces. The hard surface is the primary transmission medium for the sound waves in room-to-room and floor-to-floor situations. The lower the pitch, the more easily they are transmitted. Without boring the daylights out of you with boring math, look at it this way. What do you hear while standing outside a club trying to scab a ticket for a sold-out rock show. I hear girls going, the wood whisperer! (laughs) (laughs) That's not usually what I hear. I hear, get out of here, kid. You're ruining everything. Back of the line. You only hear the bass and kick drum. Now, in building studios, the goal is to eliminate direct transmission. This applies to shops as well. To be specific to the basement shop, insulation between the joists helps, but it doesn't solve the low-frequency problem. The best and fairly cheap solution is to install 3-8-inch drywall on the ceiling, tack furring strips perpendicular to the joists, then put up another layer of 3-8-inch drywall attached to those furring strips. This will handle a good portion of the floor-to-floor transmission. The other piece that is often overlooked is the door. Having a door at the top and bottom of the staircase will make a significant difference with both low and high frequency transmission. However, that's not always feasible. A heavy double drape will help cut down on the high frequency when double doors aren't possible. You know, stuff like egg cartons, foam sheets, magic cloth, those are all snake oil, according to a bike too many. The only way to stop the transmission is to create an air gap and minimize direct line transmission through solid media such as walls, floors, doors, and windows. See, that's not true because there is another way to stop it, and that is to take up knitting. There Ooh. you go. Yeah, that is the one thing I will give the knitters. They do have that on us is the quiet. <laughs> I think I think if you skip the furring strips and add furry strips, that will deflect it a little bit. And it'll look good. So Yeah, yeah. a little faux fur on the walls. You know, when, when you've got a basement Shack. shop, I imagine ceiling height is a constant thing. Like, Yes. And I mean, losing, you have a furring strip plus a 3H drywall. Is that as big of a deal as I think it might be in losing that additional height? Uh, it, <laughs> I have a garage shop and it would be significant. For, for yeah. myself, I wouldn't really have to worry about it. I would just make sure I make shorter projects. 
because I already just kind of, you know, I have more than enough room. I have to, I have to jump up to touch my joys. So, all right. Yeah. I guess it depends on the basement, but I'd be thinking if that ceiling is pretty low, you're going to probably not be looking forward to losing it. But if it means the difference between your family being happy about your hobby and what you do for fun and and not being happy, you deal with losing an extra inch. I think you just need to work until you can tune the shop space to like the format frequency so you can play with those higher harmonics and like really annoy the family, but in a pretty way. That just got all confusing. Yeah. Sorry. He spent too much time at the museum. Music students. What are you going to oh, do with a music people? student? We, we understand Jeez. acoustics. God. Well, I did because I was a geek music student. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's go on to... <laughs> no conversation just went down. <laughs> Thanks for killing it, Shannon. Oh, uh, it's your birthday. We'll humor you. Uh, next one here is from Nick. He says, continuing my uninvited medical advisory role, this is in reference to Wood Talk number 171, the neck divot, which became the title of the show, to which Mark made reference is called the sternal notch, where the... Cla- That's it. That's... I, I struggled through that whole thing. <laughs> where the clavicles articulate with the manubrium. Ironically, this sounds like something you might find in woodworking. For example, when constructing the Blacker House chair, I like to embellish the sculpted crest rail with a decorative sternal notch. Ooh, that does sound right. Beats the heck out of a tulip. And it does. You need a sternal notch saw for that, though. That's true. And you can get one for $300 at uh, Bad Axe Toolworks. All <laughs> uh, right. Moving I'll on. I'll email Mark right now. Quick. <laughs> get on it. Sternal notch saw. Get on it. Um, no voicemail this week. Actually, we did have a voicemail, someone giving us a Bluetooth headset recommendation, but it was so muffled and difficult to hear that uh, we couldn't play it. But thanks for He's that using email. using his Bluetooth headset. <laughs> That's the problem, right? <laughs> this thing works great, I promise. Uh, you just can't hear what I say. Okay, let's go into our email, and this is where we get down to the nitty-gritty. I've got a question here from Mike about epoxy, and he says, I'm using West Systems Epoxy uh, with a slow hardener on a project, and I have a question regarding the use of fillers to thicken the epoxy before application. Is there anything that I can use short of buying the actual filler to thicken the epoxy? Now, I use a lot of epoxy, but I do use their filler, and I figured I would go to somebody who knows a lot more about epoxy than I do, specifically someone who works in the world of boats, because boat guys like to use epoxy, and uh, wrote an email to Andy at Boatworks Today. It's boatworkstoday.com. He does a video series and articles all on boat stuff and things. And uh, here's what he had to say. Most of the fillers used by West System have a fine silica base with other goodies added depending on the application and working characteristics needed. The only one typically used for wood projects, specifically on darker woods, is their 405 filleting blend as it is mixed with powdered walnut shells giving the epoxy a dark color to help blend the joints, as well as general wood pulp to help minimize dripping and running. On light woods, I tend to use their 406 silica filler. This turns the epoxy mixture in off-white, but really helps to prevent the material from running and dripping. To help blend, once the joint is assembled and clamped, sprinkle some fine wood dust and rub it in, or just go over the area with some sandpaper while the epoxy is still wet, and work the dust in that way. So the short answer for the poster's question would be leftover <clears throat> to use leftover wood dust from their project, finer the better to avoid porosity in the finishing process. I wouldn't thicken uh, it much past ketchup consistency, though. So it's good to know. I mean, we all know about mixing wood dust with glue, but when you're using it for uh, this purpose to thicken epoxy, you actually have to add quite a bit to get that thickening effect. So I wasn't really sure whether wood dust would be appropriate, but it sounds like uh, he he recommends it. So uh, there you go. Might save you some bucks. Just keep that sawdust when you make it instead of sucking it up the the, the vacuum cleaner. Save some of it and um, and you might have it uh, when you need it for your epoxy. Although if you had a vacuum bag, it's an awful great way to store that until you need it. Yeah, that's yeah. true. 
That's true. That's you where do. I get the dust. I crack open the Festool extractor and pull the stuff out of there. <laughs> cool. Shannon, you're up. All right. We got uh, an email from Ted. Um, I bought some plans online for some wooden toys. Now, at first I thought this was spam. Dude. I thought it was the guy who read Ted's woodworking plans. I'm glad <laughs> you said that because I, when I see the word plans and Ted within a few right. cent, like words from each other, I know something's up. I, I was ready to, to delete this comment with, with uh, passion from there, but yeah. then I read further and realized this is legit. <laughs> right. So Ted bought some plans for wooden toys. They call for small parts, and he wants to know how you joint and plane small parts. So... Um, for me, from my perspective, since I do everything by hand, it's become a lot easier. But there are still times when um, you kind of have to take the wood to the tool. In mm-hmm. fact, I just did a video where I made that stupid little chip clip inspired by this show. And I had to take the parts and actually hold the plane upside down and run the part over the plane in order to joint uh, the edges and, and um, uh, the faces. But you also can just take uh, some double stick tape and just tape it down to the bench top mm-hmm. um, and plane it that way. Uh, if you have dog holes on your bench top, a lot of times you can move that dog hole up like, you know, 16th or an eighth of an inch above the surface and you can plane really, really small parts that way. But I still find I'm using double stick tape just to prevent the thing from sliding around. Um, in a prior lifetime, when I was doing little boxes and craft show type stuff, I was still using a lot of power tools. And the way I handled that was a lot of forethought and planning. Mm -hmm. Um, I would do everything I possibly could to the piece before I started breaking it up into individual pieces. So say I needed to put a profile on it or something like that. I'm making a small box or whatever. And, you know, say it's a square and each piece is like two inches long. I would take the long strip before cutting them out and cutting the miters or anything. And I would route the profile then while it's a longer piece And then I would cut them apart into smaller pieces so that all I really had left to do was glue it up and maybe clean up any squeeze out and then a final sanding and I was done. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, that's not always possible. Um, In my experience, when it's not possible, that's really the time to move to hand tools. Um, Little parts and power tools just scare the crap out of me. So uh, I don't know about you guys. Do you have any any uh, tried and true kind of solutions for these little tiny things? Well, I I think it's always possible. Even with power tools, what will wind up happening is you end up in a situation where you only need one. But in order to make this thing, you've got to get a piece that's at least 12 inches long. So you're going to have to kind of uh, sacrifice a 12-inch piece just to get that smaller piece out of it. Um, Because I'll do exactly what you're describing with uh, trying to to keep everything in, in longer pieces, do as much as I can with it, and then cut it to length as the final step. Um, so you really shouldn't be doing too much with this stuff uh, once it's down to its final size other than finish sanding. So try yeah. and do everything ahead of time. But, you know, maybe if you can, if that's the case, make uh, make multiples. You're making toys, right? So right. most of the time <clears throat> yeah, people I mean, don't make just put one. Some sort of jig or carriage something. Yeah. I keep going back to the router table, you know, thinking like pattern templates and templating jigs. You could always do something like that. But, you know, again, if you only need one, <laughs> you're taking this time to build this big jig. And the the job on the actual piece is done in 30 seconds. And yeah. You're like, damn. Well, you know, the other thing is uh, classic wooden clamps, I think, are great for holding parts, especially small mm, parts. Yeah. You need to do like a little routing on a tiny little square piece. That's your hand extensions. Instead of using push paddles and stuff to try and maneuver it over the router table, that's one trick that I like to do as well. And they sell, I think someone sells um, like a holder that you can use at the router table, but I think those wooden clamps work great. Yeah. 
Um, go go further up in the show notes when you're listening to this, uh, Ted, and watch that video on the Japanese woodworker and see how he does it. <laughs> Just don't blame me when you slice your hand. Over. <laughs> yeah, when you're don't call me from the ER. <laughs> nice. Hey, well, let's move into this next one. And I, I know to some degree we've had a rash of shooting board questions yeah. come in over the past few episodes. So I, I figured, what the heck? Let's throw another one in. Usually, cortisone's good for that. Oh yeah, it helps with the rash definitely. Okay, so Tom says, ah, I'm done with that, Shannon. I can't do that anymore. <laughs> Just kidding. It's my job to this do the This is my last jokes. show, everybody. <laughs> Thank you. Good night. Yeah, you're treading into in certain territory on bad jokes. That's my little nick of the world, niche of the world, whatever. <laughs> He's not spot. upset that the jokes are bad. He's upset that I'm taking you're them. You're the one from. giving That's them. Right. Yeah, exactly. I practice these in the mirror all day long. <laughs> so anyway, so Tom wrote in. He says, I have a Stanley 7C with a thicker aftermarket blade, a 5 that I need to get a thicker iron for, and a 4 with a hock iron and a Knight Tool Works wood body smoother. None of these seem great for use on a shooting board. Thinking of maybe a low-angle bevel-up bench plane for this specific task, but would like to add as much versatility as possible. So low-angle jack versus bevel-up smoother versus shooting board-specific design. Well, Tom, I know we've – like I said, we've talked about the shooting board before. Myself, my own personal – usage when it comes to the shooting board i like something with a little extra heft and while i do agree that a say a low angle version of a hand plane would definitely help out with those end grains uh to be quite honest with you i use a simple number five with the traditional bevel down and i i get really really decent results for me the key is making sure that you have the sharp blade and quite honestly i think the the shooting board design itself can also have a huge impact on the results that you're going to get. So we've talked before about, say, shooting boards that have a slight ramp on it, especially one in that situation. You're, you're kind of you're coming in on a, an angle a little bit, or for sure, at least you're using most of the blade. So that will definitely help you out. I, I like going with those those bigger hand planes simply because of the fact that you have that extra heft and it's going to work for you. Just like me. When I come up to speed when I'm running, when it happens once or twice a year, it takes a while <laughs> to slow down. So therefore, when you have some heft, it will just keep on moving even once you actually impact something. Nice. <laughs> I like so, it. Does that make sense? <laughs> it yes. does. It does to me. Um, okay. Uh, well, let me, let me follow up though real quick and say uh, I probably would not use the 7 because that's an awful big plane. Uh, the, the 5 – for sure, it's probably my go-to. It's one that, again, it has enough to have without exhausting you. There you go. Cool. All right, next one here we have from Baron. He says, I just watched Mark's video on building the Blacker House chair. Really enjoyed it. Uh, that actually just came out today, by the way, for those who want to go see it. Uh, really enjoyed it, but it did raise a question or two. How would you cut the mortises without a multi-router? Could you use a domino? How about by hand? And lastly, the technique of soaking the maple strips before they're inlaid looks really cool, but is there a concern about the fit as they dry out? And were they glued in or just hammered in? So I thought um, I was getting a lot of these questions uh, over email, so I figured this would be a good thing to put in. So if you haven't seen this video yet, head over to my website at thewoodwhisper.com and just look for the Blacker House Chair video, and it kind of shows all this stuff. Now, uh, this project heavily featured the the multi-router because, like I've said this before, the only way to really get this thing done in that compressed time frame was to have jigs set up that are very accurate to work with a routing system that's very accurate and easily repeatable, and uh, that would be the multi-router. So all of these jigs are built to work on the multi-router. And uh, the thing is, can it, you know, what did he specifically ask about how uh, how it might have been done? Sorry. Without it. 
Yeah. Okay. So the multi-router is really just a router on its side. And yeah, there's a lot of like, there's platforms that are moving in two axes. But if you really think about the fundamental action of what's happening, everything that's happening there is just flip it 90 degrees, turn that router upright and design a jig to work with that. You could still get the same stuff done. You could even take the jigs that, that William was using, for instance, if you had all the measurements and adapt it for a router working in a vertical dimension, uh, in a vertical direction. So yes, it's absolutely repeatable without the multi-router. You would just have to redesign those jigs. Uh, could it have been done with, um, you know, by hand? Of course, this, this is one of those things when you're talking about weird angles and curved pieces and lots of weird stuff going on. A lot of times it's actually easier with hand tools, because if you can, if you can lay it out and you already know how to cut to a line, laying it out is really the hard part. So once it's laid out, you cut to it. And, uh, Shannon, I remember not too long ago, there was some weird mitered thing or a tool chest or tool carrier or something. You were doing some really weird angled miter situation that you mm -hmm. were you were pleasantly surprised at how easy this was because you were yeah. able to just lay it out and cut to the line the hardest part was laying it out the rest yeah. of it was just i grabbed a saw cut to the line chiseled to the line and i was done right and it was it was yeah you're right it was almost disappointing it was like oh i just made this compound dovetail joint and it yeah. really wasn't that hard jeez okay i'm not that impressed anymore you know right well there's this in this particular chair that as you go from the uh vertical uh pieces the back legs as they meet the crest rail there's a spline that goes up and then over across the top so when you're cutting this with a router any, just about any other method you would use would likely, because you have to do it in two steps, you know that the groove you cut on one side is not going to line up perfectly with the groove after you set up for the second cut. Like something is just going to be slightly off. Well, thankfully with these pneumatic clamps and the way that the multi-router works, it does come out perfectly. Um, and mm -hmm. I think even if I used you know, let's say an edge guide or, or some sort of jig doing it with a vertical router, I, I still think I wouldn't be as accurate as it was with the multi-router. But if you had laid that out and cut it by hand, if you had the skill and the time and desire to do it that way, I actually think you would get perfect results or near perfect results. So, so I do think there's a lot of possibilities here. And this is one of those cases that it really highlights how great hand tools can be if you have good layout skills. They, the, they did it somehow originally. Exactly. And I don't think <laughs> the they... Hall brothers did not have a multi-router. I'm going to, I'm going to almost guarantee that. You sure? I mean, yeah. come on. They might've, um, they might've had multiple guys with routers. <laughs> yeah. I think they just had, uh, <laughs> yes, these are our multi-routers. This is Bob. Uh, there's his brother, John. <laughs> I, I'm just picturing this line of guys standing there. <laughs> yes. I'm a router. Um, well, I mean, the thing is you just need somebody who's got really good hand skills and, and I'm sure this shop that built these things in the hall's shop, they certainly did have those skills. Um, and it was just a matter of execution. And could you have used the domino? Yeah, actually, I think the domino in many ways would have simplified this process because when you're using a router to do it, you've really got to stabilize the workpiece and make sure everything like there's no room for error. With the domino, it's it's kind of a lot easier, you know, because you're taking the tool to the wood. And there were a lot of cases where I was watching these weird angles and things. And I was like, yeah, totally. We, for mortises and the joinery, the primary joinery with all those wacky angles, the domino would have handled that quite well. So certainly no problem there. Uh, now for the technique on the maple strips, uh, we basically, if you haven't seen the video, we soak them in hot water. And that just kind of helps them uh, be a little bit more pliable so that they can become the stem of a, a flower. Excuse me. And um, then we basically just kind of sanded them so that they're just a little bit of a taper and then use the dead blow hammer to smack it in. 
And the thing was, we they go in with quite a bit of pressure, and the reason is because you have slightly it's it's a the router that we use to make the stem leaves a slightly rough cut, so we want a, a little bit of an oversized piece of material to inlay so that it just kind of even things out and, and makes it look nice and smooth. God, those Skype conversations are confusing me. <laughs> there's like Skype back, for pe- people who don't see this. There's a Skype conversation going on between Matt and Shannon right now. It's distracting as hell. We get bored when Mark talks, so. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna let me wrap this up here. Um, yeah, so it, it does swell a little bit, but it's not enough that it's. So I can see what his concern is: is that it would shrink down, and you might have a gap after the fact. They're so oversized as we push them in intentionally that by the time the water just leaves everything, um, it's perfectly fine. It's nice, nice and tight. And yes, we do use glue on that to to make sure it doesn't go anywhere. Um, and that's it for me. Well, if you if you think about it, you're putting glue in the recess, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's causing the wood to swell too. Yes. Yeah. So it's getting skinnier, and the piece is getting fatter. So when the piece gets skinnier, the whole you know it. We also have to remember that it's proportional. Yeah, you know, it's we're talking wood, about wood tiny, tiny strip. percentage. Yeah. So you know, say it's cherry, and cherry's got a four percent tangential movement. I think whatever. You know, if you're talking about a piece that's a sixteenth of an inch wide, what's four percent of a sixteenth? A whole tiny little amount. Yeah, yeah, it's a very small amount. So, uh, and and looking at the finished product looks good to me. The one thing that you do have to be careful of, though, is once you insert that, uh, after the glue dries, you don't actually want to jump on smoothing it just yet because there will still be some shrinkage there. And if you smooth it right away, you'll end up with uh, indented inlays instead of inlays that sit nice and flush. So I would give it a couple of days at least to fully dry and all the moisture to evaporate and then do that final smoothing. And and that should give you good results. You, um, you soaked them what just to make the curve? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Just to make them a little more pliable. Cool. All right. You're up Shannon. Oh yeah. What do you know? This is, uh, as soon as I find my place in the show notes. Oh, this is from Chad. He has a question related to one of my comments uh, regarding wood harvested in human environments and how they change when they're shipped to drier climates. I think I was talking about some tropical wood. Um, Chad lives in Kodiak, Alaska, an island, and they tend to have a very high average humidity, at least 50 to 75% year-round, but a fairly low temperature. Summers are usually the 50s and 60s. The local trees are Sitka spruce. There is a lumber yard here, but all the wood is stored outside and uncovered. How can I expect fresh lumber to dry out in this kind of humidity and temperature, even covered? I can buy wood at a store here, but oak and maple are over $12 a board foot, while spruce is less than a dollar a board foot. Is working with spruce just going to be an exercise in frustration as we'll probably continue to dry and move indoors? The, the thing that you have to understand chad is that every every shop every location is going to have its kind of resting resting environment resting humidity resting temperature and a lot of times the boards will they'll acclimate to that level and they will stay pretty close to that level for their life they're gonna they're gonna go up they're gonna go down as things change and barring any kind of you know, a flood and suddenly they're, they're underwater or buried in snow or something like that. For the most part, the wood will stay pretty much the same once it reaches that, that level. What you need to understand is what that is for your shop, for your house. Um, and this is where uh, professional furniture makers often can have issues because, you know, if you're making it somewhere and shipping it somewhere else, you know, you don't necessarily know. 
in today's society with all this climate control and everything like that, it, it has made it a little bit easier. So what I recommend you figure out is when does your lumber come to rest and where is that? What is that moisture percentage? Uh, certainly the temperature will play a little bit into it, but probably as you know, the colder things get, the less uh, moisture is in the air. So um, with it being relatively cool there, um, it is actually, your wood will actually end up being a little bit drier too, because it just can't hold that much moisture. Maritime climate though, <laughs> it probably equals it, it out because you've got such high moisture to begin with. So more than likely, like the wood that's being stored outside, that spruce and everything, it's probably not being kiln dried. Or if it is, it's being dried to a much higher level, around 18% more than likely, and then set out to kind of acclimate on its own. I wouldn't be surprised if your resting moisture is probably around 12 to 15%. Um, this is what happens in Europe. Europe is a much damper climate than North America. So kiln dried standards in, North or in Europe are 12 to 15%. Um, and it's very possible that you're living in the same type of environment. So, um, you, you know, we, we, I can't, in other words, I can't really answer your question because I don't know too much about how, when lumber comes to rest, that's, that's your homework, if you will, is to figure that part out. Um, and if you're buying lumber from out of state or from somewhere else and having it shipped in, you just need to know that I need to let it rest until it reaches whatever that equilibrium is. And, um, figure that out. So get yourself a moisture meter and do some spearminting. Mm, I like spearminting. Yep. Cool. Matt, wake Sitka up. Sitka spruce is fun to work with too. So buy some of that because it's awesome. I think Matt fell asleep. No, I actually, I, I had to turn the, uh, the mute <laughs> on because I was printing something and it got really loud on my old uh, printer. Sure. Yeah. I even le I left a really bad joke right in the middle there. And suddenly I realized, <laughs> oh, the mic is off. Darn I missed it. my opportunity. <laughs> All right, so here's a really good one. Uh, this came in from Ryan, and this will give me some opportunity to make some really bad comments in it. Ryan says, I haven't heard you guys discuss the use of reclaimed wood. Is there a reason for that? Is it more difficult to work with? Is it not appropriate for your projects? I'm designing and building a dining room table and a top made from thick reclaimed lumber. Is there anything I should know about other than making sure to pull all the old nails out before sending it through the planer? So I went ahead and I, 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 I know some of the the pros and cons of this. And I just wanted to double check. So I put a link in here for just a, a quick kind of blog post from something called greenbusinesswatch.org called the benefits of reclaimed timber. And this pretty much hits many of the things I was thinking about. Like some of the pros of reclaimed lumber is number one, you, you may get the opportunity to actually use say some species that typically are in short supply, especially in commercial lumber yards. Mm -hmm. So I know around here, like chestnut, um, I don't know about your guys area, but that's like one of those, I, I'm not aware of it being commercially available currently. Maybe it is. It's starting to come back around, but I imagine it's expensive. So that's one big uh, benefit of being able to use reclaimed lumber. Also, reclaimed uh, lumber is often from very old buildings and maybe even from vessels, depending on the type of, of wood that it is. So it's often formed from, say, like older mature trees. And by older mature trees, I typically think of ones that are much larger, got a little girth on them. So therefore you could potentially get much larger boards than you could again, commercially get. So we're talking about really wide pine boards or really wide, whatever kind of a boards that you would maybe be in awe if you saw them in their lumber yard. Uh, so that's always a huge, um, and, uh, let's see here. Another one is the fact that a lot of this reclaimed lumber, because it's older, because it was a more mature tree when it was cut down, it tends to be far much, far more stronger and far more stable. So far it's much less stronger, far yeah. more stabler. 
stable or yes. Yeah, I looked it up in Wikipedia. It's a real word. Okay. It's it's yeah. better. It's betterer. There you go. It's much betterer for everybody all around. So it's less prone to splitting. And uh, this is better than dog farts. Uh, is as is timber that is often exposed to elements over the same period. Now, uh, not if uh, you were in the room with me right now. It wouldn't be better than dog farts. <laughs> Happy birthday, Big Daddy. Uh, now, another thing, another pro, of course, is the fact that since the wood, uh, again, is more stable, it, it also has had a chance to kind of dry out a lot more than, say, some of the commercial stuff. Sure, we have the kiln drying going on and everything, but this wood for sure has probably hit its equilibrium quite nicely. So again, it's going to be far more stable and uh, you'll be able to work with it a, a lot better. And on top of it, a big one for a lot of people is the fact that it has really beautiful tight grains compared to the stuff that you can get these days. And it often tends to have a really amazing patina. Now the cons are that amazing patina. Um, if you really like the way it looks, there's a very good chance that when you mill it, you'll lose some of that. So mm-hmm. unless you're working with the, the rough boards as they are, uh, you I mean, you're still going to get a beautiful board. You'll still have all the other benefits. But another thing is, depending on the size of your project and how much reclaimed lumber you get, sometimes it's hard to match up reclaimed lumber with other reclaimed lumber. So barn number one at the end of such and such street and barn number two, which was two states over, there's a good chance that the wood is not going to be matching up. So if you need to match up from multiple piles, um, yeah, good luck with that. Uh, let's see. I think the only other thing is the fact, again, it's kind of you're dealing with that whole thing with the old nails and pegs and all that stuff. So you definitely want to pay closer attention to that as you're going through it. Mm-hmm. And uh, those seem to be the big things. I'm sure that some people will be concerned about maybe what was the finish originally on that reclaimed timber? Was it something where maybe chemicals that were used in that area, something have leached into it. So that's something else you might want to consider yeah, a little like history a, behind it, like a factory floor material or something. You don't necessarily know what may have been spilled on that floor at some point. Exactly. It could be some hardcore carcinogenics and you're like, look at this beautiful table I made. Why is my family slowly disappearing? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, I, I'll add to this because, you know, regionally makes a big difference because a lot of, there are regions like mine where you just don't come across much in the way of reclaimed wood because there's just not much that's very old around here. This they have reclaimed dogs. 20 years old. <laughs> I know. There's just not much history here. But in spite of that, there is a place called uh, Porter Barnwood. And uh, I went down there once and talked to Thomas, who's a really good dude. And they get the stuff in from everywhere. So a lot of times they'll have someone uh, break down barns or anywhere you can get reclaimed lumber, uh, they bring it in and they've got a big lot down here in Phoenix. And what's interesting about this process, if you're into reclaimed lumber, you probably get good at this pretty quickly, but you really have to have a discerning eye. Um, You know how when we buy rough lumber, we tend to get better at it over time as you start to see through the rough sawn surface to kind of predict and maybe, you know, analyze the wood and decide what you're getting before you even get it back to your shop. It takes on a whole different level with reclaimed stuff because a lot of times the, the surface is just not only rough, but it's dirty and yes. old and you just can't tell what the heck you've got until you get it back to your shop and start working on it. And just as Matt said, as soon as you, you plane it, a lot of times you lose like 99% of the character that was there. Um, so it's a lot trickier and you need a much more discerning eye to figure out what's good and what is just firewood. Yeah, usually well, when I see... Let's not forget that when you do plane it, you are kind of trashing your knives too <laughs> yeah because what you're planning off is dirt and silica yeah. and stuff that eats knives so yeah just way be prepared harder on to the resharpen. Yep. whenever i think of patina all i think of is oh yeah that's that's a nice shade of gray 
<laughs> yes. And, you know, and in spite of that, I mean, there, there are quite a bit, quite a few negatives to it, but I think the people who, who do good things with, uh, with reclaimed wood, I think it's just amazing. I mean, go, go to porterbarnwood.com and right on their homepage, you'll see examples of projects that they've made with the stuff that they have. And for the amount of effort it takes to do it, it's certainly good that the, the results are as awesome as they are. Yeah, I think the, the the two biggest things for me are definitely that grain pattern. I mean, you get some really super tight grain in there. In fact, I've even heard some people refer to like really old pine as like being you know more solid than say maple. Right. Yeah. It just it's, it's hard right stuff. In, really yeah. hard. <laughs> Cool. So it's a neat opportunity. All right. Well, you know, guys, I get a lot of emails routinely, like seven times a day, usually. You do? Yes, I do. Not oh, just those generally. Those are just emails. from Matt. Those are, yes. I get those emails from Matt and he's asking me like, when are we going to hang out? And I'm like, never, Matt, never. Um, I know. And I love the way that you keep changing the email, but have you figured out how I keep getting those new emails? <laughs> so no, uh, but people do ask me, how can we support what you guys do? at Wood Talk. And there's actually a couple of different ways. And uh, one of the best ways is with a recurring donation, which we always appreciate at woodtalkshow.com. Look on the left-hand side and you'll see those links for that. And we'd like to thank Martin S. and Adam P. for doing exactly that. So thank you so much for your support and everyone else who already does a recurring donation. We always appreciate that. And you can also buy a Wood Talk t-shirt at twwstore.com. Those will make you look real fancy, real cool at your next uh, woodworking guild meeting or you go to a woodworking show, you sport that shirt and you show everybody that you're a fan of the show. That's something we appreciate too. And if they run after you with pitchforks and torches, it's not our problem. <laughs> nope. It's yours for wearing it in the first place. Yep, that's part of the disclaimer. And you can also leave us an iTunes review. Just look us up in the iTunes store, click on ratings and reviews and click that star rating there. Just like uh, DCNOK. Ripstitch, Woodbutcher to me, and Brandon Kane all did. And Brandon had this to say, if I could find the damn thing. <laughs> I'll get to it. I'll get to it. There it is. He says, these guys are just awesome. Mark, Matt, and Shannon do an excellent job. Their combination of humor and good woodworking advice make this a great podcast. I listen to Wood Talk every morning on my way to class until you run out. Brandon, sorry about that, and would recommend it to anybody who loves to talk about woodworking or just needs a good laugh. That's nice. That's so nice. That's nice. That's that so nice. That's a compliment, right? I think so. Yeah, I'm pretty I'm sure. I, I so rarely get those. I don't <laughs> recognize it's them. It's quite refreshing to get one. It is. Uh, Matt, how about you give them the contact info and we'll get out of here. All right. Hey, folks, do you have a comment, question, or topic suggestion? Or maybe in next week, kickback, 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 kickback. You also would like to sing happy birthday to Shannon. It'd have to be a belated uh, happy birthday, though. Oh. There's several different ways to contact us. Leave us a voicemail on Skype. Our username is Online. Call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180, email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com, or leave us a comment on our Wood Talk Facebook page. And if you're ever looking for the show notes or downloads from today's show or previous episodes, you're going to find those over at woodtalkshow.com. Awesome. And you know what? I'm going to drop a little uh, a little bomb, just a little taste of something. And I, I, we didn't talk about doing this ahead of time, but I think we should at least just give a little teaser. Uh, the, the guys and I, that you two specifically are, oh, are are talking about taking the whole wood talk venture in a much bigger and cooler direction. In addition to the audio show that involves a video and we've hinted at that in the past, but I think we finally formulated an idea that works for all of us that I think everyone is really going to enjoy. And I can't give you a lot of details about it. It probably isn't going to be implemented until the fall, but that's how much time we need to kind of get this thing together and make sure we have all those uh, T's crossed and I's dotted and all that good stuff. But I just wanted to kind of throw that out there that you should expect some really cool video wood talk content 
in the near future. And I'm totally, it was such totally a cool excited. idea that it made Mark giggle like a schoolgirl. Totally. On and we Friday were, night. We were up on Friday night. It was late for all of us. And we we're having this like emergency Skype meeting about it. It was that exciting. Yes. And my family got really suspicious because suddenly I disappeared when I stopped <laughs> watching Gold Rush. Where's Daddy? <laughs> yeah. So an hour later, they're like, where's Daddy? Right. <laughs> Yeah, so really good stuff. It's 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 coming up, and, and I gotta say, it's it's your support. It's your communicating with us, leaving us voicemails, helping us with the financial support, all these things that let us know that there's an audience out there uh, interested in seeing this. And and we that's really the reason why we're excited to do something like this is because we know you're out there listening, and uh, we also know that since we do video, we know that people like video as well. So why not take what we do with Wood Talk and try to extend it in some way into a video format? And that's that's where we're headed. As well yeah, as well, a, a well, whole still new... keeping the audio. Don't panic, people. Oh yeah, yes. the audio is the core. That will never go away. Uh, and also, we should be looking at a new website in the next few months, which uh, I can't wait for that. All right. Well, that's about it. So uh, have a great woodworking week, everybody, and we'll catch you next time. See you. This podcast is part of the Frog Pants Studios Network. For more information about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.